Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Launched in 1993, the S&P Depository Receipt, or SPIDER, will soon turn 30. Over these three decades, the ETF product landscape has grown tremendously, both in assets under management and in the increasing breadth of risk profiles that can be accessed. Credit-focused ETFs have seen particularly robust growth, with products like the HYG reaching an asset size in the tens of billions. And with this in mind, it was a pleasure to welcome Joanna Galagos, co-founder of ETF creator BondBlocks, to the Alpha Exchange. Spending her 20-year career in the design and production of exchange-traded funds, Joanna shares her perspective on the inputs that have been critical for providers to deliver products at such scale. Here, she cites the operational efficiencies developed by passive index money managers in the years preceding ETFs as critical. Our conversation turns to fixed income ETFs and the founding idea of Bond Blocks, a suite of products designed to provide more targeted credit exposure based on both industry and rating. Launching with seven sectors that comprise the B of A High Yield Index, Bond Blocks products may be to the HYG what ETFs like the XLF and XLK are to the SPY. We finish our discussion with some of Joanna's views on the efforts to motivate career development for females in finance. She's benefited a great deal from female mentorship in her career and now, in a very senior position, draws from these positive lessons in advocating for professionals in the early parts of their own career. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Joanna Galagos. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Joanna Galagos. She is a founder of Bond Blocks Investment Management, an innovative new ETF company. Joanna, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dean. Very excited to have this conversation. I love innovation in the world of finance. There's certainly been a fair amount of it in the ETF universe. So it's going to be great to get an understanding as to the kind of mission statement and deliverable that you and your partners have set on. But let's get started with you and your career path, how you kind of got to this point. Tell us just about your journey in finance, where your first position was, and kind of walk us through that trajectory. My story is very simple because it's basically three bullet points. <laughs> I've been in ETFs for 22 years and that my entire career has been in building products and building businesses in ETFs. And I've only worked effectively for two firms. So I started out my career as an analyst at Barclays Global Investors, which was the time I started one of the largest institutional investors in the world. They had a focus and a superpower in building out index operating process. And they were the biggest index firm in addition to having lots of other businesses, but they transformed that business into what we now know as the ETF industry in the way that iShares made a big imprint on the industry back in 2000. And so really until BlackRock bought Barclays Global Investors, I spent all my time in those very, very early days of the ETF industry. I have a lot of history in how the industry was built out from 2000 to 2013. And then I wasn't at BlackRock really for very long. It's just three years after the transition of the acquisition. And then the rest of my career was spent at JP Morgan doing something similar and building out an ETF business with partners there. 
to have them enter into the ETF industry. So I grew up in the ETF industry under in product organizations and grew up with all the fast paced industry growth and innovation. And I think my most comfortable place is in a lab type environment when a team and an environment and a culture set up is a collaborative place where you're solving things in an iterative way. I really like a blank page and you know, I kind of consider myself a master editor at ETF product design. And that's really where I've thrived. And I've been trying to repeat that every probably eight years or so. I need to go back to the beginning of something, either a new project, a new initiative. And the last time I did that was about a year ago when I joined industry colleagues to form BombBlock and to start a brand new ETF business that is only focused on fixed income. Well, we'll have a lot to talk about in that context, for sure, over the course of our time together. Let's go back to the days at Barclays Global Investors. I just recently read a book by Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times. He wrote a book called Trillions, and he really did a great job of documenting the growth of passive investing, some of the key transactions, one of which, of course, is BlackRock and BGI. And BGI is just kind of a storied place. There's a great reputational equity that comes out of that place. It seems to have launched a number of folks into even bigger and better things. So that there's something there. I just was curious if you could maybe reflect back on that time for you in terms of career development. What is it inside of BGI that was effective from a team dynamic standpoint, from a learning and innovation standpoint? Tell us a little bit more about your time there. There was so much going on there. When I started and entered the workforce at about in 1999, you had I'm sure you've you've read through this, but you know, you had the transition of CEO to Patricia Dunn, and she really took it was actually all women run at the time. I think Andrea Zerberti was COO, and then Allison, if I remember correctly, was CFO. So like there was a really unique kind of mixture of things that were going on at BJ. But what I would say it felt like was first of all, you were on the West Coast. So you felt generally removed from what we would kind of consider Wall Street and industry. And second thing was, it was a very academic place. It had its roots in academia. Obviously, a lot of the investors were from academia and then had sort of applied some of their research into indexing and into hedge funds. And so it was a very, gosh, smart place, but it was very unassumingly smart. You could talk to anybody. Everyone would take time to explain to you something. If you were a junior person, which I was at that time, you could the friend or call a senior investor and they would sit down and explain to you what they were doing. It expend an operational process. If you didn't understand something, I guess it was collegial in that way. And people always say that about good culture, <laughs> that it's collegial, but it's pretty special. Now, the other thing was it was kind of removed from its parent company. I'd gone through a few acquisitions at the time and it was owned by Barclays Bank. And Barclays Bank was in London, didn't have a commercial banking presence here at the time. I think later on, like the Barclays card kind of came to America. You had this sort of self-autonomy feeling as well. You didn't really connect to the Barclays part of the ownership until much later, I would say, when things started to integrate a bit more. So Barclays had this really amazing asset management asset, so to speak, that was profitable and interesting and was the leader in indexing and lots of other areas in quantitative investing and in hedge funds, as I mentioned. And what they did was they had this institutional business and they wanted to expand and grow. 
and they figured out, well, we had this relationship with Morgan Stanley where we were running these exchange traded funds, which were launched in 1996 for 17 countries exposures. And a business plan is put together by a consultant that said, well, this is the way we could build a retail business. We could, instead of creating a traditional mutual fund company where we'd have to build really expansive distribution process and setup, and I'll explain what I mean by that later, you can use the exchange traded mechanism, the technology of these products being exchange traded, and you can basically distribute directly to your consumer. And this was like 1998, 1999, and when I guess when the business case would have been put forward. And as you may have read, it was sort of like there was a premise that there was a lot going on in day trading. It was that the individual investor would suddenly have access to institutional quality product and they would buy it like they were buying stocks on their computers and within their discount brokerage account. In fact, the group that we were part of was called the Individual Investor Group at the time. It was later changed to Intermediary Investor Group. It was a growth strategy. And so at that time at BGI was just really cool. There was obviously some disagreement of whether BGI should do that and whether it was worth spending the investment into this new initiative in this new business. By 2004, that business had over $100 billion in it. And the amazing thing that it did was it took a business that was margins were really, really, really thin. You're charging sub basis point fees for index exposure. And suddenly you could charge nine times that for the same S&P 500 exposure because you weren't distributing to institutions, you're distributing to advisory. And nine times is just nine basis points, which is incredibly cost-effective to buy a portfolio of 500 securities in that time. So the transformation of the business, the decision to go into the initiative and try to grow the business in different ways than it had been built on, again, being far away from Barclays, being in the West Coast, it was a place where I think there was a lot of great risk-taking, great strategy, and people that earnestly tried to execute that strategy and work well together. So I was 24 and learned so many great principles. It was just an amazing time to start your career because I was learning about growth strategies. I was learning about institutional quality product, the kind of things that you should be putting in front of your clients, best in class process, best in class people. And it was very formative to have started at Barclays Global Investors versus starting at a different place in the industry in those first five or six years in the 2000s. Well, you mentioned getting started right around 2000, and I think the triple Q was just underway at that time. And so this was an interesting time where retail was becoming more engaged in markets, perhaps too engaged. But one of the things that you touched on, and I'd love for you to dive into this a little bit deeper, which is just the cost, the scale of this product in the US and globally in the way in which ETF providers are able to deliver this at such a compelling cost, I think is just a triumph of technology and capitalism. It's just a really good value in terms of what it costs. It's actually, to me, incredible. And it just kind of illustrates the scale at which a lot of these products run to be able to deliver it that thin. What's the evolution on that side, just from a cost standpoint? Were there periods where the industry just decided, hey, we're going to really start competing more aggressively with each other on cost 
and perhaps there were other periods where costs just kind of stayed. What does that look like just in terms of your 20 plus years in this product suite, the cost compression that's occurred and the benefits ultimately to the end user? Yeah, I think the entire industry in the last 20 years has undergone so much technological advancement. There's so many opportunities to improve your underlying investment processes that costs have come down everywhere. So you may see it in reduced fees or fee wars with like ETFs or exposures that are rather straightforward. The journey of cost sort of starts, I think it starts with like what you're offering. And again, back to the BGI story, they had perfected, same would be true for State Street and same would be true for Vanguard. If you touch on any of these businesses, what they spent time doing was perfecting the end-to-end investment process. It makes a difference in an index fund if you are not paying attention to trading costs or execution costs or working with your providers to like drive down any kind of the inputs to data, anything like that. It makes a difference. The basis point makes a difference in tracking. And so you had before ETFs came along, you had 20 years, maybe 15, 20 years of these businesses operationalizing an investment process that was very precise indexes. So their products were always very cost efficient. And so what they did was they transformed those operational processes and then they used them to support these ETF businesses. And so that's why you're getting products that are nine basis points for S&P 500 exposure. I think when emerging markets came out, I think that's a good example. You could charge more at that time because the trading costs and the execution costs, it would be to assemble that basket and operate that basket were higher. And so there is some things that you could charge more for in ETFs. And so those funds would be well above 40 basis points for their exposure. Sector funds were charged more. Maybe a small cap fund, you could charge more because of a different liquidity cost of getting in and out of that fund. So they're always reflective of an investment process. And I think that that entering the market into the space, the mutual fund space, where mutual funds had different cost structures in the way they delivered product to their clients, you had a pretty stark contrast in what they were delivering. ETF businesses were delivering institutional kind of pricing direct to consumer and direct to businesses. And that's just something that had to be absorbed and digested. And the good thing is, is that over the 15 and 20 years, more people entered the market, there was more competition And it put pressure on the businesses to maybe reduce their fees to compete, but it doesn't always necessarily win you a client. It doesn't necessarily always answer the use case your client has. So it didn't just transform. Everyone didn't just run from product to product because there's actually issues with having to switch your portfolio out of one product into another. But I think that all of those stories about how costs started to improve for the client, it's just net benefit of the industry, net benefit to clients, which over time, mutual fund industry, the servicing industry that services mutual funds and ETFs all need to to use technology and they need to like push on their models and tell them the most efficient. I just think that these index businesses and these institutional index businesses did it really, really early. It's all kind of coming to bear right now. Well, just going back to, again, the starting point for you, just right around 2000. And just thinking about the ETF business now, the diversification of the products, there's inverse products, there's leverage products. I was just looking that even the GLD, which just seems like it's been around forever, that was 2004. The VIX ETF suite 
certainly was closer to, I want to say maybe 2010 or 11 was the ETFs. You've got a whole new and maybe more innovative landscape in some ways versus the very basic, let's say, spy exposure or triple Q exposure. What along the way, just in your two decades of doing this, in terms of milestones or markers from a product innovation standpoint, what were key periods where maybe it was a regulatory change that enabled a different pathway for innovation? What are some of those things that, as you look back, were critical in terms of how the industry got to where it is now? You're right. It was very incremental. ETFs did not fit into the 40 Act very well. They were in 1993 to probably to 2007. No, I'm going to get the date wrong. But one of the difficult things about ETFs is you couldn't do everything you wanted to do in ETF that you could do in a mutual fund. So I think one of the important times was probably around 2007, 2006, where they allowed ETFs to be based on indexes early days, but it had to be a U.S. equity index. And so then somewhere between 2000 and 2007, that expanded to allowing for fixed income. It allowed for international equity. But every time something wasn't codified in a rule with the SEC, it just limited the type of products that could come out. So as what you referenced about derivatives entering into the product sphere, the way that happened was by individual review by the SEC. So anytime something wasn't codified, you had to go to the SEC and you had to file something, either an exemptive application or you had to file a different type of trading regulation application. And you had to ask for permission. You had to make a case and you had to explain why you were still operating within the ETF model. And it took a long time. It it was open-ended. It could take 18 months. It could take four years. And so some of those products were happening in between these bigger codifications of regulation. And I think what they represent is they represent not the norm. They represent most products in the products that in the offering ETFs are have always been products that offer transparent index link exposure products, and they're really utilized as building block exposures. Others have used the incredible access that ETFs provide through the exchange, and they package it in the ETF structure because you're like, you're packaging a trading strategy or you're packaging access to a different market type, like you mentioned, the VIX, or you're looking at a leverage inverse product. They're very sophisticated trading strategies you really have to understand. And I think that that has confused investors at times or confused the narrative in the ETF industry. But there's nothing wrong with the products. You just have to understand them. But I would say the majority of products are exposures that are more akin to what you would expect in a broad-based portfolio. But the journey, I think, has been through individual innovation, which has been really important. And the industry has been working to sort of normalize the ETF regulations so that the playing fields are leveled. Because in those individual applications, certain providers would maybe have a different rule set than another provider. And the SEC would maybe say, well, we're not going to do that again. So we're going to just stop giving that relief over time. And in 2019, the SEC passed some really good regulation that sort of says, these are the things that encapsulate all the innovation that's been coming along in the last 10 years. 10, 15 years, let's put it all in one place, let's make it for every provider. And of course, that's fantastic because it enables providers like BombBlocks to come to market and to offer new choice for clients and offer new innovation budgets that will deliver more products. So I guess generally, 
it has been difficult for the ETF industry to sort of continue its growth. But along the way, it's been quite slow. It may feel fast to others, but it's been quite incremental and very careful. And when you look back on, you mentioned just regulation and that kind of opening up opportunities or at least making the process of bringing product to market more efficient in some ways. When you look at, let's say, regimes of the SEC, are there periods where it just feels like things have slowed down, that maybe the philosophy that the commission is taking is a little bit more on the cautious side, and so the ability to innovate or the pace of innovation slows, and then does that give way to something that is a bit more welcoming to product innovation? Reflect on that a little bit for us. I think these are long discussions. You're changing rules that are designed specifically to protect investors and ensure that they understand what they're buying. And so everything should be done thoughtfully in in a considered way. And I think the ETF dialogue has been going on for 25 years. And as we mentioned, there are just different people that have the jobs over 25 years. So the consistency isn't necessarily there. And then you kind of have to think about like the way the industry was growing, like as much as I was looking at some data before we hopped on. And I think in 2004, you look at how many products have been launched by that point and how many assets are in the products. It's just not interesting. I mean, I think like the industry was just, I think of it as exploding the whole time, but it really wasn't. It was this quiet thing going on (laughs) that started to grow really quickly and by 2004, you're only looking at like $228 billion under management against the backdrop of a larger investing and mutual fund industry that's probably around $10 trillion at the time. So there's probably like just the natural thing of different time periods of trying to keep the ETFs conversation going over 25 years is hard. So I wouldn't say there's any regime that was more favorable or not favorable to ETFs. It was just like being very careful and thoughtful as you started to allow the industry to continue to grow and keeping that conversation consistent with people that were in those seats over 25 years. It just takes time. You kind of have to start over after a while. That's why the ETF rule has been so important because it codifies, as I said, 15 years of discussion. So it was more of a dialogue than I would say a favorable regime versus a non-favorable regime and keeping the, the ecosystem from a regulatory standpoint consistent. So sometimes you just have to start over as frustrating as that is until you get to major inflection points. And I would say allowing ETFs to be based on any index, that was a big one that was in the early 2000s versus just domestic equity indexes. That meant you could do international ETFs, that meant you could do fixed income ETFs. And that standardizing the exchange rules was really a big deal in 2007. And then 2019, it took a while to do that. But there are some that would reference the great financial crisis and the SEC's priorities were different and weren't as innovation focused after the great financial crisis as a time where they were looking to be very careful about giving broad relief to the industry. If you would point one of those periods out, it'd probably be then. Well, you mentioned earlier just about you being at your most comfortable when you're, quote, in the lab, which I really like that characterization. And when I think about that, I think of experimentation. I think about problem solving. Bring that to life a little bit for us. Tell us about a couple of times where you had your lab coat on and you were, maybe it was trying to think about how to bring a new product or to solve some sort of end user problem. 
within this ETF product? What are some of those recollections for you? When I think of the lab, I think of the team, I think of the process of being in a group of people that are iterating. But when I think about a good memory would probably be definitely fixed income, obviously. Just think about it for a minute. (laughs) It's an over-the-counter market. The securities are bonds, and you're going to put it into a registered structure, which is an equity. So it's registered to the SEC as an equity, and then it's going to trade on a stock exchange. And you're going to have to transform everything about the -the over-the-counter of the market into the requirements for transparency and pricing of an equity market and also the market making of an equity market. That's a big lab problem. (laughs) (laughs) And that dog don't hunt for a lot of people. There were even some fund accounting issues in the early days of how we were including coupons into the NAV to make sure everything lined up to the settlement date. That's a continuous endeavor. That's the one that Bomblocks has taken up as its sole focus. And we, we want to improve the access that investors have to fixed income with the vehicle, the ETF. And I just remember back in those stages, it's actually the 20th anniversary of that lab, that we had to bring parts of the industry together. We had to get desks to talk to each other that hadn't worked together, that were at broker dealers. We had to source data differently so that it could be used by the exchanges to offer continuous pricing on bonds. It's awkward sometimes. The lab's awkward because sometimes those solutions are good. They start off good and you make them better over the years. And I think that's really evident in the way you see fixed income ETFs trade today and the tests they've been under during all the bouts of volatility from the great financial crisis to the pandemic to this year. They keep delivering transparency and price discovery that's very unique and hadn't been available. We like to talk a lot about the fact that there are new types of firms that started trading ETFs and by definition trading fixed income securities that were off the run. And so when an ETF has something in its portfolio and it needs to be created or redeemed, that means that those securities that aren't normally priced suddenly have a price and it's visible. And that kind of creates a virtuous cycle of liquidity that, again, has benefited investors through being able to see more of these markets. And we would even say that some businesses have benefited greatly from the fact that ETFs, fixed income ETFs, have come into the market, like ECN platforms, like TradeWeb and Market Access. Some of their products were built originally to service ETF market makers because they needed a place to be able to see prices of the bonds they needed and they needed a place where they could set up their models. We needed something that would interact while they were setting up to trade ETFs. So that lab is continuous and is changing a lot even right now. And we've always loved that problem. Whether we were together as a team at Bombbox or we were away at different firms, it's always been just the passion problem. This is really interesting perspective and certainly my own background and expertise is more on the equity side, but certainly looking at a lot of ETFs, some of which are equity-based, but increasingly there's all kinds of exposures in there. And you mentioned fixed income. So we can think about TLT. We can certainly think about HYG, and I'm sure that's going to lead us into a conversation on the firm that you and your partners have founded. But you pointed to this idea of being able to see where things are. And I think where the, I would say, US equity market outstrips just about every other market in the world is that screen-based 
liquidity and price discovery. You can always see the price and you know how much you can transact. There's a stack of bids and offers. It's pretty compelling to be able to see that. And I think especially when we hit these periods of crisis or at least elevated market vol, what we'll hear oftentimes, let's say in the high yield bond market is, you really don't know where people are marking things. You can't really see anything. But the HYG continues to visibly help people see price discovery, not even just in the ETF, but also in the options markets as well. So it becomes a pretty interesting product. Let's talk about bond blocks and maybe start with this idea of you and team in the lab. You clearly have created the company to help bring a new solution to the end user. So tell us just about the founding idea and what you guys are looking to accomplish. We founded BombBlocks a little over a year ago. We're a team of industry veterans who just, as I just set up the story about BombBlocks, have always had a view that the market lacks enough fixed income product. And given all of the potential that a fixed income ETFs have to deliver a lot of value to clients, a lot of value to the markets, is just sort of underserved in product offering. And by definition, that means that the fixed income investor is, is underserved. So we wanted to build a business that was 100% focused on fixed income and make those products available to bond investors. And the reason bond blocks, I think, is unique in that and is something that's special about this new lab that we're all in is being independent being a group of experienced ETF professionals that literally know how to build these businesses and know how to build the products just allows us an enormous amount of investment we can make into our innovation budget to do products that are much more precise and are probably more expansive. If you're in a bigger firm, you're competing against a lot of priorities. Maybe you're trying to start an ETF business within a big firm. It's very hard to do. So we often say that our superpower is that focused. And we came together about a year ago. We launched our first products in February of 2022, February 17th, actually. So it was just right in the thick of the volatility at the very beginning. And we've talked to hundreds of clients and many of them on the first thing they say is, I can't believe someone hasn't done this before. Why is that? And we love to tell them, that's exactly why we're doing this business is because it needs focus. So let's go into kind of how you're creating the bond blocks from the HYG. So maybe first give us a little bit of an understanding of the constitution of the HYG. Sometimes I'll just compare it to the S&P, which has got its effectively its XLF, XLI, XLU, the kind of industry subcomponents. And there's something similar in HYG. It certainly doesn't exactly overlap with the S&P, but there is some it's comprised of these different sectors. So tell us about that. And then just in terms of how bond blocks breaks it apart, be great to get a better understanding of that. We're hundred percent focused on fixed income. We started, although it's not the only area we've launched into, or we will continue to launch into, we started in high yield corporate. So HYG is the existing product out there by iShares. But in our experience, we realized that indexes matter to institutions that use them and reference them every day. So we chose to build our products off of the ISDFA high yield index. And we used the sectors in that index, which we found was oftentimes 
use as a benchmark for investment portfolios. And so we wanted it to be very relatable to the bond investor and the portfolio manager in high yield. And we launched seven sectors that build up into the broader B of A high yield index. And so there's consumer cyclicals, there's consumer non-cyclicals, industrials, energy, financials and REITs, healthcare, and then TMT, telecom, media, and technology. And we wanted to deliver more precise exposure to the fixed income investors that is looking to express their views. And then after we launched the sectors, we launched credit rating high yield products. So we also launched, again, off of the same master index, the ICBA high yield index. We launched double B rated corporates, single B rated corporates, and triple C corporates. So depending on how you look at building your high yield exposure. We went with both sectors and both rating. It's interesting because in markets like we just experienced, you probably would have loved to have more precision earlier in the investment in your portfolio a lot earlier than this year, but we're glad they're here. So as people come back into high yield, they can build up their exposures more to the way they invest today or the way they see the world. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm going back to I want to say early 2016 was a pretty good spread widening period in high yield U.S. credit, but a lot of it was in energy. It really was energy. It was dragging everything. It widened so much. And so perhaps today is kind of the opposite situation, maybe just because of the price of crude, some of the spread widening that's occurred in high yield may not be hitting the energy companies as much. So it's almost a reversal of 2016, but it really gets to the heart of what you're trying to do. So help us understand. I mean, it just would be interesting as you think about the use cases. So there's the specificity of the exposure. When you think about your audience of end users, is it geared especially towards institutional? Is it meant to be a broad offering? And then just in terms of use cases, how would someone think about utilizing these sub-indices from an exposure standpoint? You hit the nail on the head. Out of all the sectors that comprise a high-yield, a broad-based high-yield exposure, energy does have the most volatility over time. And you're right. Like At this point, a lot of the names in our ETFs, which the ticker is XHYE, the energy ETF, over 64% of the holdings in that energy ETF are now rated double B. So it actually tends to have higher average credit quality than others at this point. So if you're trying to access or manage the exposure to energy, either on the positive side or down the line, if you want to take energy out of your allocation, you don't like the volatility, that's a great use case. So there's a very simple, intuitive, tactical and active positioning use case to use the sectors in build exposure there. Probably where we would love to move the industry forward is today, most investors in fixed income ETFs use them for liquidity management. So let's say you are a portfolio manager that has a list of names that you want to go and buy, but it's going to take you some time to get into those specific issues or get into those specific names. Then you could at least get the exposure of the sector that you're looking for if the names are in those particular sectors. And for liquidity management standpoint, put your investable cash or the creations that are coming into your fund every day into the exposure that reflects generally the view you're trying to express on a single bond basis. So liquidity management is also another use case that is just used 
a lot throughout the strategic allocation, the tactical allocation we hear from clients. And then just diversifying your portfolio as much as you can. So we got some feedback on the ratings funds recently, and they were so pleased to see how diversified the ratings funds were versus CDX because we have hundreds of names in our product and CDX has not as many names represented. So there's another aspect to these indexes and managing the indexes that provide more diversification. And so we think that it may be a choice going forward as people are trying to use different vehicles for their exposure while they're being more precise with single name cash bond trades that they'll adopt our ETFs for that. So one of the things, at least in the hedge fund universe, that seems to be sometimes a trade is a relative value construction where someone might be doing the compression trade or it's the widening trade, the triple C's widening versus some other higher rung in terms of ratings. How much of just what you guys have created is geared towards that? What are the other use cases of the ratings-based ETFs that you've created? It's exactly that use case. It's breaking down where you see your portfolio going. And I think the top line, and maybe top line is the wrong word, but the first use case of, I just want to move my portfolio to a higher quality. I'm still in high yield, but I want to move it into higher quality. That's the BB case, XBB case. And we heard a lot of that. In fact, we heard so much of it that people wanted more of it as much as they could get the exposure they wanted to trade into that. So that's a very informed, insightful, tactical view that a bond investor or a bond portfolio manager would have. It's a very intuitive thing to just want to buy and shape exposure of their risk in their portfolio in a defined way. That's exactly what they're designed for. Or it's, I don't want to invest in triple C's. We've also heard that that's the place where I don't want broad exposure with. And if I have these broader ETFs that include it by default, it's extra exposure I don't want. So I'd like to reconstruct my high yield exposure and eliminate triple C. There's the transitory. I want to move into what is trending, like you said, whether it's expanding or compression. And then there is, I want to exclude. And that is exactly how they're designed. They're designed to give you diversified exposure to the ratings categories in high yield and for you to be able to customize your view. One of the early challenges for any company in the asset management business is the assets. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about how Bond Blocks is engaging the end user community, the process of growing awareness just from the use cases and getting the word out there. What's that like for a new company? It's such a great time to start a new company. The small versus big, you don't want to discount how much technology is enabling any business right now. And first of all, as I mentioned, we're all 20-year-plus industry veterans and ETFs. And so it brings with us, and actually even further than that, but it brings us an advantage of we have institutional relationships across the industry, across all the channels. So like we bring that as a starting point where we can engage and talk to clients directly. And that's been fantastic. The validation of someone taking your call and really interested in our business has been fantastic. And as I said, we've met over 500 clients since we started. But then we've also been using social media and direct marketing and digital marketing 
within our business. And that has really amplified our story, our products, our employees, and who is interacting with Bomb Blocks. And so as a small firm, you're on equal footing there. You have to earn all of those likes. You have to earn all of that. And so like we do put a lot of effort into building out credible, very useful content for our clients. But it is a really an amazing way where we are reaching clients directly through technology. And we're just getting started with figuring out the best way to do that. Well, you've got a ton on your plate. You've created some really interesting products. So I'm sure there's not a lot of free time, but are there other innovations that as you kind of map out the next couple of years and not to give away any secret sauce, but as you think about expanding Bond Blocks' repertoire of products, are there any things that are kind of just on your mind in terms of, hey, this would further solve the portfolio challenges that we come across in our conversations with clients? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we're expanding across all the assets classes and fixed income. We launched an emerging market sovereign debt product at the end of June. We'll be moving into, of course, we'll be moving into IG and we'll be exploring more in emerging markets and we'll be exploring more across different spaces. We're really actually where we find the most interesting part of our road mapping is clients asking us directly for products. I think that, as we talked about earlier, a lot of clients have been underserved by the product offering in ETFs and fixed income to date. And so when we're speaking with clients, almost most of our calls end up in, of course, we ask them, do you have anything that you think we should be focusing on? And most of them ask us to build them product. And if it's an idea that works for them, we're open for business, we're happy to do that. And I think what that reflects is the need that investors and portfolio managers have for something that reflects their own investment process. And we are really encouraged by that. And so we've been taking all that feedback and trying to corral it into our own product roadmap, which is very robust. We plan on launching about 20 products a year for the next three years. And to date, we've already launched 11. There's so much we want to get to, and we've just been trying to process it all and but be really thoughtful about what problem we're solving and who we're solving it for which should be generally the institutional fixed income investor that needs strategic asset allocation tools and building blocks for exposures that don't exist yet. The other thing that is a byproduct of all the labs, I mean, there's too many to count at this point, but we end up creating process. We end up solving certain problems along the way because it's germane to the product problem we have at the time. And so what we're trying to capture is the technology around that when we do that in each instance. I wouldn't put it behind us. Like we do actually have technology goals where we're either building proprietary data or we're going to be building proprietary technology over the time. I think having the last 20 plus years of experience and knowing how many times we had done that, either for bigger businesses that we worked for or for businesses that were ancillary in the ecosystem, we're now kind of smart enough to try to capture that. And given how I'm not going to say easy, but how amazing it is to be able to not have enterprise software gumming up the works of our organization yet. We can do things with cloud-based architecture and with, with firms, and we're really kind of enthused to hopefully in a few years have developed our own technology that will help either the ecosystem of fixed income ETFs or our business or others. Well, that's exciting small firm entrepreneurship. That's the ability to move fast. And as I think about the 
deconstruction of the master index into these sub-indices. From a timing standpoint as well, I think it's really timely because what we see in these sectors, maybe it's old economy versus new economy, certainly energy is a very specific kind of exposure now. The way it interacts with inflation is so different than, let's say, how tech stocks interact with inflation. One's on the right side of it, the other is on the wrong side of it. And that becomes just so important to understand where those exposures are. You can say, let's just use HYG. And I watch the options trade on HYG all day long. It's a blunt instrument. It's just got a lot of stuff in it, some of which you may want and some of which you might not want. And so it's really cool how your firm decomposes it. Joanna, I wanted to finish with just trying to gather some of your thoughts on the movement to further empower women in our field of finance. You'd mentioned the way in which BGI had so many women in very, very senior leadership levels, positions. You've been at large firms like BGI, also JP Morgan, and now you have co-founded Bond Blocks. I'm just curious if you could reflect on that. There's a lot of conversation around helping females get further in the industry of finance, obviously very male-dominated still. What are some of the thoughts that you have just in terms of the efforts being made, what's fallen short, where there's actually been real progress? I'd love to finish with just gathering some of your thoughts on that. I couldn't have had a more supportive career path. Maybe it was the time I started working. I made my first start working in 1998, 99, and Maybe things were getting better already for representation of women in senior roles. They did work for a firm that in very early days had a woman CEO, woman COO, and woman CFO. I've never worked for a woman as an aside. I've always had male bosses, but every single boss I've had has just been person after person, like just really, really important in my career. It has slingshotted me forward. And so I think with BGI in particular, I mean, in those days, there were women in positions, very visible positions. Amy Schuldager is one person I think of because I'm thinking about my young self and my young eyes and like what I would see around me. But a lot of representation at senior levels already. And then just to be frank, like all my bosses reported and at the end of the day up into a woman. So I think there was a sense of how to work and foster women. And it's hard to recreate. Again, we talk about the fairy tale BGI days, but it really was like that. So I had a great start. I was very fortunate in that. So I was also fortunate to know when it wasn't working well. And so I think visually is the first thing I would look at when I was at a firm or I'd interview with like, how many people did I see that looked like me and what positions were they in? I think that in the last Five to 10 years, when I think I went to JP Morgan, it was the same thing. I, I looked around, I was like, wow, I don't just see women, I see diversity, I see lots of different people in a room contributing to the same idea. And then the managers all had a lot of really excellent management training about inclusion. This is before DNI. And then it was more solidified as DNI, and it was great. There's probably a lot more work to do. What I try to do in my world is advocate for the best candidate we can while expanding my own view into who we're hiring, how we're shaping the team. I think that those are the opportunities that anyone can do at any level of management. 
is really push yourself on your biases. Make sure you're interviewing as many people as possible. It's the hardest thing to explain to someone that you need to, maybe it's not intuitive always, but it's, you want to hire yourself a lot because you kind of know your own skill set. And you really need to be hiring people that are better at the job than you are, that come from very different backgrounds than you do, and can add something to your worldview. It's always just made me so much better. And I think that my journey is just impossible to recreate in some ways. But what I do is I just try to live the principles that I benefited from as much as possible in the smallest ways. And that first principle for me is just really looking at putting teams together that feel like they come from different places, different firms, different backgrounds, different colleges, anything to help us think more. Because as I said, I like a lab and we're all solving problems every day. And so that's what's been really valuable to me. A great way to end our conversation. That's really interesting to hear. And it's something that I've just thought a lot about. We've hosted some events that are focused on showcasing women in finance at senior levels and trying to use those events as a way of just getting the younger class of folks more excited and giving them a sense as to what the path to to longstanding success might be. Well, this has been a great conversation. It's been great to learn more about what you guys are doing at Bond Blocks. I wish you guys the best of luck. And there's no doubt that the industry needs innovation like this. Kudos to you and your partners for launching. And I want to say thank you for spending the time. Our guests will enjoy this conversation. Thank you, Dean. And thanks for the best wishes. We're going to do our best. And we're really excited about being in market and having this business together. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Bond Blocks Investment Management Corporation is a registered investment advisor. The content of this podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to be investment advice. The views expressed in this podcast are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Information about the qualifications and business practices of Bond Blocks is available on the SEC's website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov.